It's a very unique kind of lifestyle. It's a personal walk, but it's not private, or it's not supposed to be. It's an individual walk, but you walk it in a crowd if you're doing it the right way. It's a singular walk, but it's done by a group at the same time. It's something that we do, and we do it together, this, this journey with Jesus. And in um, the, the, for our text today, and, and really I'm not going to take the text apart. I, I want to introduce our text just as introduction into the direction and, and as a foundation to build on some of the comments that we want to move into. But the, the text gives a unique description of, of the person or the people who have given themselves to walk this walk with Jesus. So Romans 8, 5, 15 to 17 says this, that for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then Paul said a very similar thing to the Galatian church, only he was much more brief in his, in his delivery. He said this in Galatians 4, 7, so you are no longer a slave. This may give you some hint to the title. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, there's something really unique about this walk. And there's something very unique about the people who are on this walk. Those who walk this walk walk with a confidence in their stride. They walk with a surety in their stride because their, their past has been settled. They're no longer something. That, that, that yesterday is settled. Their present is very secure. And their future is just filled with all kinds of hope and possibilities. There's not many people living that way uh, in the country right now. There's not that many people walking around with that kind of confidence, with that kind of drive, with that, that kind of anticipation and, and hopefulness. But it certainly should be those who are walking and journeying with Jesus. It's the kind of life that God desires for us. It's the kind of life God has made available to us. Now, the truth is, and I'll speak about myself, but my guess is I'm not alone in that, is that we're not always there. We're not, we're not always in that place. We're not always in a place of, of settledness or security or hope. That sometimes we find ourselves in different places, places other than that. And, and that's what I want to do in our time together today. I want to go back into the Old Testament. I want to find three places that the people of God found themselves in their journey, um, and find some correlation that hopefully can help us today in a real practical way, because we can find ourselves in these same places, and we need to know and recognize and, and understand what to do about it, okay? So their journey started. We, we know the story in the Old Testament of the people of God. Their journey started with God calling a man to a place that he didn't know about. And, and made some promises to him. And through Abram, God said, I will make for myself a people. There's a reoccurring theme throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. There's a, a theme that God keeps saying over and over and over again. He says, 
I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's the underlying theme and purpose of all of this. Of all of civilization is there is a father who's looking for a people, and he's making a people for himself. It's important to know today that, that this journey you're on, God himself put you on it. God himself started you on your walk with him. If you're a Christian today, and I trust you are, you're not a Christian by accident. You say, well, I chose. Yes, you did. You were absolutely free in your choosing to follow Jesus Christ. It's just that he chose it before you did. And we're not going to go down that discussion. Just know it's true. Before the foundations of the earth, God knew you. God wanted you. God desired you. God willed you to be. There's, there's something wonderful today if you're a Christian. There's something great you can know. You, you are, you've been sovereignly selected. Amen? You've been sovereignly selected. You've been divinely designed and desired by the creator of the universe. And we see Israel in, in three places in their journey, primary um, locations that, that we can glean some information from. Um, we see them, first of all, in, in Egypt. Egypt's about dealing with darkness and, and living in the sinfulness of the world around us. We find them in the wilderness, learning who God is and trying to figure out this new way of living, uh, learning what God expects of them. That, and it, it's about having their faith challenged, to, challenged to obey and, and testing that obedience. And then, and then thirdly, we find them in Canaan, this land that had been promised to Father Abraham. It's a place of settlement and expansion, of, of overcoming obstacles and enemies that may present themselves. These are the three primary locations. If you know your Old Testament and the stories of, of Israel, you, you understand that and you know that already. As we study this though today, I want you to do me a favor. Don't think of these three places um, as sequential. Don't think of them chronologically or geographically, that we move from one to the other, you, Egypt, and then they go to the wilderness, and then they go to the promised land or to Canaan. Um, if, we, if we make that too literal in comparing it to our Christian journey, you will frustrate yourself. You will confuse yourself. Um, you, you, you will find that sometimes that doesn't seem to make sense according to where you are or where you find yourself. If you think of it simply as this progressive one from the other to the other. And in all honesty, I can say that because I haven't found, at least in my journey, maybe your journey is different, but I, in my journey, I found that this Christian walk isn't that neat. It isn't that clean. It isn't that is it isn't that precise? I wish it was. I wish it was that sequential. I wish it was that successive. And that when when this this phase was behind me, it's behind me, and never to appear again. I I don't know. Maybe is your if your life's been that way, then God bless you. But but it hasn't been true in my life. See, Israel didn't leave Egypt and never struggle again with sinfulness. Israel didn't enter the promised land and never again struggle about obeying God. 
most Christians I've talked to and, and know, it, it, the honest ones at least, that they, they understand and, and would say and give testimony that life is this interchange of any and all of these places in no particular order, that they seem to ebb and flow, they seem to come and go, that we can find ourselves in our journey headed towards or in one of these places while following Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are you with me? Okay, it's, it's important you understand this foundation as we, as we keep moving forward. Um, Israel didn't leave one place and go to the other and go to the other. We can't think of it in those terms, okay? But each place has something for us to learn and something for us to glean today. Father, I pray your blessing on your word and on your people. I pray that you speak to us. I pray you help every one of us to see, examine, understand our particular walk with you. And that, Lord, you would challenge every one of our hearts to continue to pursue you with all that we have in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's just walk through them, all right? And, and we're going to get someplace. And, and we're actually going to actually get back to our text at some point, too, hopefully, God willing. Number one, Egypt. Okay? We, we, we know about Egypt. We've heard about Egypt. Egypt... It, it, if you take a note, Egypt's a foreign place. Okay, that's what we can have to know and remember about Egypt. It's a foreign place. Egypt appears routinely throughout Scripture. It's, it's one of those important places that, that there's interaction with Egypt um, on an ongoing basis. Israel's relationship with Egypt is, is, is really one of mixed reviews at different times. It's first mentioned in Genesis 12 where there's a famine in the land. And Abraham and Sarah, remember the story? They, they go to Egypt because there, there's a famine in the land, and they, they go for food, and, and the story is while in Egypt. Remember, Abraham says to Sarah, hey, tell them, tell them I'm your brother. Tell them you're my sister because you're really good looking. If they see you and know that I'm the husband, they're going to wipe me out so they can get to you. That's sort of a very you know, earthy way of saying it, but... It's not, it's not King James, but that's basically what happened. And, and God had to actually intervene to, to spare their lives when the king found out that they had lied. That there were, in, in Israel's history, there were different kings that inter, interacted and entwined with, with Egypt for, for a variety of reasons. King Solomon, if you remember, married an Egyptian woman. And ultimately, it would be these weddings that he had to foreign wives that would lure him away from God and his walk with God. At times, Egypt seemed to be a place of refuge, a place of provision. Then at other times, it was a place of bondage and a place of poverty. But Egypt was always, to the people of God, was always a foreign place, was always a place that God never designed for them. God had provided a land for them in which to live. And Egypt was always this foreign place. Egypt represents in, in our lesson today this, the power that sin has to lure and to attract us. And nobody wants to admit that. We're mature Christians and we don't want to you know, own up to that. But the reality is Egypt still 
keeps some little grips and keeps trying at least to reach out to us and to, to pull us into its grasp. E Egypt is a, is a deceptive place. Egypt, actually at the time, when confronted with Egypt, seems like a good idea. Many times when the people of God went to Egypt, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It seemed beneficial at the time. Sin has a way of doing that, doesn't it? Temptation has a way of doing that in, in our lives. Even as Christians, even though we're walking and journeying with Jesus, there's still this, this thing, there's still these moments, there's still these areas of our life, there's still these times in our lives where Egypt comes along and presents itself. And it seems like a good idea. It seems beneficial. It seems like it'd be something that could bring about something good in our lives. You know, that's the reason we tell lies, usually. Because it seems like a good idea, because it seems like we'll get our own way if we do that. Or we can make ourselves look better if we do that. Or we can protect ourselves in some way if we give ourselves to that. It seems like a good idea to sometimes give that person a piece of my mind. No one's ever done that here, I can tell. It seems like a good idea, Egypt would tell us, to sleep with someone who you're not married to. Egypt would tell us it's a good idea, it's okay to hate people you disagree with. It's okay to reject people who are different than you. See, I trust you've learned by now, Egypt never turns out well for the people of God. It could work for some other people. You know who Egypt works for? People who live in Egypt. People who are part of Egypt. But for the Christian, Egypt's a foreign land. And it will not benefit us. Egypt will never be our home because it's not our home. And a lot of times when you sort of succumb to the allurement of Egypt, you recognize it's foreign land immediately. It doesn't take you long to figure out, like, oops, shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have said that. Wish, why on earth did I go there? We find ourselves in this strange place that we know it's not a place we belong. It's unfortunate that the lure of Egypt doesn't just go away once we give our hearts to the Lord. Wouldn't that be great? And if that's been your experience, please come and tell us how you did it. But wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if you sincerely give your heart to the Lord and, and never tempted to go back to Egypt? Sin had no more attraction to you, no more pull. There was, there was no influence that Egypt had over your life anymore. What, what I've found, sometimes it's actually the reverse of that. You give your heart to the Lord and there's some things that seem to intensify. There, there's some temptations that seem to get bigger. See, even after Israel was delivered from Egypt, you know their story. There was always this attraction to go back. There was always this thing in their mind that said, oh, it'd be better to be in Egypt right now. It was a lie. It was a deception. But it was very much real in their thinking. See, salvation delivers us from the penalty of sin. It does not remove from us the possibility to sin. Get it? 
we still have that possibility. Now, I'm not talking about the condition of sin, the state of sin. When we're saved, you're taken out of that condition. You're born again. You're not in a state of sin. But we still do seem to have the capacity to commit acts of sin that need to be owned and dealt with. Here's the phrase you can maybe help you to remember. Saints can sin. Come on. Let's tell the truth. Saints can sin. You might as well tell on yourself because everyone knows it anyway. It's just a reality. And there's, there's no shame. Actually, probably the shame is not being willing to own up to it. It is to not be willing to take accountability. Saints can sin. If that's not true, then tell me this. Why do we need an advocate in the throne of, of God? Why do we need a counselor defending us before God all of the time? If saints can't sin, we don't need any further defense. Why is Jesus making intercession for us so much every day before the throne of God? Because we haven't arrived yet. Because we're not perfected yet. Because sin still has a place in our lives sometimes. In fact, the Apostle John wrote that if we say we're beyond the capacity to sin, if we're beyond that point where we, we can't sin, we don't sin, know what he says? He says you deceive yourself. And the truth isn't in you. But he also goes on and gives tremendous hope. He says, but if we'll confess our sins, God in that moment is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm glad we have that kind of a father. I'm glad we have that kind of a dad in heaven who's always willing to receive us back and and clean us up from the scars and the scuffs that we get as we walk through this life. But even though we're walking with Jesus, we sometimes stumble. We sometimes trip. We shouldn't plan for it. We shouldn't excuse ourselves around it. But it does happen because Egypt is real. But it's a foreign place. And it's no place we should find ourselves. And if we do, confession is the way out. Trusting in the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, the blood of Jesus, is the way out. Paul warned the Corinthians, he said, listen, let, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. We daily depend on the person we're journeying with, the person of Jesus Christ, to keep us, to hold us, to guard us, to protect us, to warn us. And he does. He does all of that. You've had those moments. I've had those moments where I'm moving a certain direction and you hear the Holy Spirit ringing the bell and flashing the light. No, 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 no. That's not a place, that's not a direction for you to go. And I wish I could say that every time I've had that sense, I've 100% of the time obeyed it, followed it. But I haven't. There's times where I've, I was so willful that I said, I'm going to do what I want to do. And found Egypt had a place in my life suddenly that I had to deal with before the Lord. Egypt is a very real place. Number two, there's the wilderness. We find them, they found themselves in the wilderness. Out of Egypt, they come to this, this massive, large area. The, the Bible in Exodus says that when they, when they came out of Egypt, the Lord didn't take them the short way. 
He had to take them on another route for a very specific reason. He says, because they weren't ready for war. They weren't ready to, to go, if they went this other way, maybe the shorter, if they went the shorter way, there would have been enemies there that, that they couldn't have handled. That they wouldn't have been able to, to stand. They would have definitely wanted to turn around and run back to Egypt. So what we find about the wilderness is it's a place of decision. It's a place of, of learning. Remember, this is a group of slaves. They're not used to having the ability, the, the freedom to choose anything. Their life was completely dominated and controlled, but now there's this, this new freedom that they have requires learning a new way to live, a new way to operate. The wilderness wasn't to be a permanent place, but it's a necessary place. It's a changing place. The wilderness was that was unfamiliar. It was, it was a new experience. It, it, it laid out, they find themselves out of Egypt, and, the, and there literally is the, the world in front of them, the, the, this massive land. And, and what, what the wilderness does for us is it forces us to ask a question, now what? Because the wilderness is about learning how to make decisions. So it says, now what? And we find the people doing that over and over and over again. They turn around and what's happening? Pharaoh's pursuing them. Now what? They, they, they start trying to run away and there's a Red Sea in front of them. Now what? They, they're out of food. Now what? We're thirsty. Now what? We haven't had meat in a long time. Now what? They come to Mount Sinai. And there's the smoke and the fire and the thunder and the lightning and the voice of God. And God wants to speak to us directly and personally to where we can audibly hear him. Now what? Hey, Moses has been up that mountain a long time. What's going on? Now what? Over and over, the wilderness presents to them these now what kind of scenarios and opportunities. Spies return in preparation to move into the promised land. Two in favor. Ten. No way. Now what? Now what? See, the wilderness is a place of testing. It's a place where it tests our faith. It's a place where it gives us opportunity to obey God, but we have to choose if we're going to or not. Egypt's behind you. Now what? We're on this new journey with Jesus. We're walking with Jesus. Now what? We've made a choice to throw off the chains of an old life and begin this new life. Now what? See, your, your journey today. Many of you are struggling. If you looked at your life, there's, there's some, some of us here who are, have a now what moment that you're dealing with. There's a now what in your head. In some areas, some circumstances of your life. And, and I'll tell you something. That question never goes away. Or I just haven't lived long enough or not smart enough. But that question in my life has never gone away. I keep finding new ways and new opportunities and new experience where I find myself saying, now what? See, every new endeavor in life raises now what kinds of questions. Every success is a now what. Every failure is a now what. Every new season that we enter is a now what. You've had them in your life and you have them in your life today. Life continually brings out those opportunities and makes us question 
and say, well, now what? Something you expected to happen didn't happen. Now what? Something did happen that you didn't expect to happen. Now what? Somebody let you down that you thought never would. Now what? The job failed. Now what? The job succeeded. Now what? A loved one died. Now what? Those moments keep coming to us over and over and over again. In marriage, every married couple has had that moment. They, they fall in love and they get engaged and they go through the, the courtship period and they, they plan the big wedding and they have the wonderful wedding and now they're married. And it doesn't take too long down the road till at different times in different ways you wake up and say, oh my, now what? We've had those moments in life, and then you start a family. And it's so exciting, you plan, and you make, set, you know, decorate the nursery, and you have the, the baby shower, and do all those fun things, planning and anticipating. You go to the hospital, and there's this unbelievable experience of, of giving birth, and now this um, husband and wife, now they're a family. And you bring this cute, adorable, loving little thing home, and it's not, but now it's three weeks later, it's three o'clock in the morning, and you're still awake. Now what? <laughs> the bills come in. Now what? The doctor reports come. Now what? Life keeps going, but we never outlive that question. We never seem to get away from that question. It's a question the wilderness raises in life because the wilderness isn't an evil place. The wilderness is a wild place. That's its name. It's a wild place. It's an uncontrollable place. It's an unpredictable place. It's an unexpected place. You've been in those kinds of places. You've been in the wild places as life, when life happens and you find yourself scratching your head saying, now what? A couple weeks ago, we had a day where it was 70 degrees and snowed all within 24 hours. That's the wilderness. It's just, you don't know what to expect next, but it comes. And when it comes, you're not usually... Not ready for it, or, or you're just not sure. And so it's, now what? And not every decision that comes our way is a test of our faith. But I would suggest that maybe more of them are than we think. I would say mo maybe more of the things that we have to make decisions and choices about in our lives are more connected to and more a test and challenge and opportunity for our faith than maybe what we realize Jesus warned Peter at one point if you remember he says Peter I want you to know something the, the devil's demanding to sift you like wheat that's a wilderness kind of experience because the wilderness sifts us the wilderness tests puts to the test what we believe what we say we believe the wilderness challenges what we say and who we say we trust. 
The wilderness challenges our desires and our values and the things that are really in us. The wilderness sifts us by creating opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to to obey God or not. To follow strictly in his steps or, or not. Fortunately, Jesus didn't put a period at the end of at his statement. The, the devil is demanding to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you, Jesus said. I prayed for you. That what? That your faith will not fail. And I want you to see that prayer extends to you. With this understanding, Jesus' prayers are always answered. I prayed for you. I'm aware of where you are. I understand the wilderness. Jesus, remember, Jesus conquered the wilderness. If you remember after his baptism, he was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness where he was tempted, given opportunity to make his stand for righteousness and did and came out in the power of the Spirit. Jesus says, I, I understand the wilderness. And he, I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Listen, there is someone in heaven who's on your side and he tips the scales in your favor if you'll take advantage of it. There's someone in, in heaven who says, if you'll trust me with all your heart, if you won't lean on your own understanding, don't, don't limit yourself to just what you know or think or see. If you'll trust me, if you'll acknowledge me in all your ways, that means if you'll include me. Bring me into the, in the narrative. Let me be a part of the decision-making process. If you'll think of me first, if you'll acknowledge me in all of your ways, he says, then, then I'll direct your path. I'll, I'll make your journey straight. I'll conquer those questions you have in the wilderness. Jesus is the answer to our now what's. He's the answer every time to every now what. The wilderness is a real place. And some, if not most of us, are there in on some way today, in some area of our life, a now what moment. Jesus says, just stay close. Just stay close. And choose in my favor. Decide in my favor. Thirdly, there's Canaan. The promised land. The, the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. Canaan's a place of possession. Canaan is, is the life we're living. Canaan is the Christian life. Some people confuse, and when they think about the symbolism of Canaan, they think that it's heaven. Canaan is not heaven. Canaan is not the goal, the ultimate goal of the believer. Because if Canaan is heaven and that's what we have to look forward to, that's depressing. Because Canaan had enemies and had wars and had failures and had on and on and on. That's not heaven. Canaan is the Christian journey. Canaan is the Christian life. Canaan is where we live. It's this new life we have in God. It's the, it's the territory that God planned for his people, that God had promised his people. And unlike Egypt and unlike the wilderness, 
Canaan isn't occasional. See, temptation to sin, opportunities to obey or disobey, they, they ebb and flow. They come and go. But Canaan is consistent. Canaan is an ever-present reality of where we are and who we are. It is the journey that we're on, this promised land. It's from Canaan that we deal with Egypt and the wilderness. It's from Canaan we're able to overcome Egypt and the wilderness. God promised to those in Canaan that I'll drive out every enemy before you. God promised that wherever you put your, put your foot, that, that'll be yours. He promised this progressive, ongoing, possessive life of, of expansion and advancement. Exodus 23, which is one of my favorite verses this week anyway. God says this, Little by little, I'll drive them out from before you until I've increased and until you have increased and possessed the land i love that i love that statement little by little you want to know the metric of walking with jesus sometimes we think we have to take these huge strides and when we can't do it we sort of give up or we get discouraged so i love god says little by little day by day hour by hour experience by experience I'm going to drive them out before you. I'm going to just continually walk this walk with you. You want to know what the metric, how to measure your walk with Jesus? It's measured not by big strides, but little by little, but increased possession. That's the ultimate end. That's the metric. There should be increased possession, not possessions. Okay? There's a difference. Possessions, and, and sometimes, especially in the, uh, the American church, we've, we've sort of merged material things, material gain, with some sense or identity of spiritual maturity. And they're really not the same thing. And I think you know and understand that. He's talking about increased possession, not of things, but of him. Because that's the goal of your walk. It's not... It's not about possessing all that God has. It's about possessing all that God is. It's about not possessing what Jesus has, but what Jesus is, who Jesus is. It's about becoming more and more like him. Canaan is about advancing deeper and deeper into our relationship with Jesus. A deeper walk, a straighter walk, a more confident, sure walk. It's about taking ground that increases our life in Him and increases His life in us. It's about possessing His Word and living it. It's about possessing His character and being it. About possessing His will and doing it, His mind and thinking it, His promises and performing them. At the end of the day, this destination of our journey isn't a place at all. It's a person. It's becoming more and more and more like Jesus. The Apostle John wrote that, beloved, now, now we're the children of God. You're a son of God now. You're a daughter of God. 
now. He says, we, we don't know, and it hasn't been revealed yet, what we're going to be. Because little by little, we're still in the process, right? But we do know this. When Jesus appears, what? We're going to be like him. We're going to look just like him because we'll see him as he is. And as we see him as he is, we're going to see us as we are through him and in him. Jesus is the goal of our journey. He's not only the one we're following, he's the one we're desiring to be like. He's the one we're desiring that his life would be superimposed over ours. Jesus has entered every place of our journey and has redeemed all of it. He's redeemed all of it. I, I hope I can tie this together for you, uh, the, the way the Lord showed it to me. I, I love how the Bible is so complete in itself. I, I want to go back to our original text. Let me remind you of it. and It'll go on the screen. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, a daughter, a child of God. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, I want to take that statement and I want to merge it with a well-known story that you know, the story of the prodigal son, the son that went out, struck out on his own, and found himself totally devastated in life and by life and decided, I'm going to return to the father and just ask him if he'll at least just give me a job as one of his servants. You remember that account I want to look at this verse with the prodigal son in light of where we've traveled in our studies today. I want you to see that God's provision has been made in every place that we can find ourselves. That when he redeemed us, he redeemed all of it. He redeemed our whole life and everything that could touch our life. So let me try to blend all these together and see if it hopefully makes sense and is a blessing to you. Why don't you stand? I need to bring this to a conclusion. You could say, what if I find myself in Egypt? What about those times where I'm really being tempted? What about those times that maybe I've even given into temptation? We see the prodigal's father. He's the main character in that story. We see him coming out. He sees the son from a distance and runs out. And what's his response? He puts shoes on his feet. It's a very symbolic act. He says, it's saying you're no longer a slave. You're no longer limited and sin can no longer have any claim on your life. I'm putting shoes on your feet. That, that, is, that meant something in that culture. It was, it was reestablishing his steps. It was restoring his foundation. King David understood in, in Psalm 40, he says, God, you've heard my cry. And in hearing my cry, you drew me up and out of that horrible pit, out of the miry clay. And get this, you set my feet on a rock. You established my goings. You made my steps secure. You find yourself in Egypt? The Father put shoes on your feet. 
He says, there's no sin that I can't forgive. There's no life that I can't redeem. There's nothing you can do that can keep you from me. There's nothing you can do or say that's going to make, you, that's going to make me not love you. To put shoes on his feet. What about if you find yourself in the wilderness? He says, well, you're, you're no longer a slave, but you're my child. You're a son. You're a daughter. What happens if you're in one of those wilderness places where f- your faith's under fire? Or you're in a place of just indecision. You're just confused. You don't know, aren't sure which way to go. Or maybe you're in a place where it's past the point of decision and it was a bad decision. It was a wrong decision. The father comes to the son with a robe. And he puts the robe on his son. He says, you're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. He affirms your identity. He reminds you of who you are. He reminds you that you carry his name. And that he's proud and glad to have you as his child. Affirms our identity. One of Pastor Sam's favorite lines was always, when you know who you are, you know what to do. The Father gives us an identity that we can rely on, and that identity will direct us to proper choices and decisions. And what if, and what about we're all in Canaan? This this promised place, this place of new life. You're no longer a slave. But a son, and if a son, then you're an heir. You're an heir. And the father takes and puts a ring on his son's finger. Again, a very symbolic act. It's a, it's a, the ring was a, a symbol of authority. It was a, it was a symbol of position and, and posture and, and power. It, w- it was a symbol that said, if you're wearing the family ring, you can, you can do business in the name of your father. He restores him by putting a ring on his finger, and he says, listen, because you're, if you will live under authority, you can have authority. And he gives us as his children authority to steward his kingdom in the earth. What a high call. To represent the kingdom of God in the earth before those that are a part of your circle of life. Completely restored. Jesus has done all of that for us. And as we walk this journey with him, we don't have to fear anything. We don't have to be afraid of anything. We don't have to be worried about failing or falling down. We don't have to worry about making wrong choices and messing up the whole thing. We only need to stay close to him. And he'll do the rest. Ephesians says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light. You're light in the Lord. So walk, journey as children of light. Father God, I thank you for your word. And I pray for your people this morning. I pray you help every one of us to examine where are we? 
we're your children. We're, we're safe in you. But sometimes we stray or wander or sometimes we misstep. Sometimes we find our place or, or we are headed toward places that we ought not go and maybe don't even realize it. I pray today by your word and by your spirit, you would give us all a clear, clear vision of our personal journey, of our walk with you. How, how close to you are? What's our proximity with you? How intentional is our pursuit of you? How clear and clean is our hearing your voice? How sharp and focused is our eye fixed on you? How committed and devoted is our heart to be surrendered to you? Lord, in this, in this simple moment, we, we bring our lives and offer them to you again. Yes, we're your children. We've been saved, but Lord, fresh today, we lay our lives down before you. We commit our steps that you would direct them, that we would follow hard after you. That we would recognize and know consciously every day that we're in this world, but we're walking a journey with you. We're walking through it with you, and this world is not our ultimate destination but life with you is for eternity. So, Father, bless your people today. If there are any of us who have failed, forgive us. If there's any today who are struggling in, in an area of obedience, strengthen them. Affirm to them the right direction. If there's any who are being badgered by the enemy, in some area of their life, Lord, we pray that as we fix our eyes and put our attention back on you, God, you said that you would give us the power to drive them out and make us victorious. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for the life that you've given us through Jesus. And as your children, we choose, we desire, and help us to walk as children of light children of God, children of the King. For your namesake, for the blessing of those that we can touch, and for our own delight and pleasure of knowing you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you. I'm so glad you're here today. And again, dads, have a great day.